Okay, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. And let me say, I've had so fun hanging out with you guys, getting to know you. I've got to talk to so many of you and hang with so many of you and chill with so many of you and uh, baptize a lot of you guys today. And I just feel like serious man crushes with you guys and like I have some new blood sisters with you girls by the blood of Jesus. Somebody once told me, actually a few hours ago, somebody said, if Jesus got bit by a mosquito, if a mosquito sucked Jesus's blood, would the mosquito be mortal? Like, that's a really cool thought. The mosquito would probably live forever because it's got Jesus's blood running through its mosquito veins. I don't know if mosquito have veins anyways, but I've had so much fun hanging out with you guys, all of that to say. And I'm excited for our last night together for this awesome, awesome camp to conclude and climax with this night, although I'm going to miss you guys like crazy. But 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, in light of our theme being, it's not about me, we're going we're gonna to close out with just that subject in 1 Peter 5, 6. Lord, I pray that you would speak. I pray that you would anoint us. I pray that you would give us the power not just to be hearers, but doers of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Please borrow my voice box. Do all the talking. That would make me very happy. Make an impact in these people. I pray that they would advance the kingdom of light and do it then in the kingdom of darkness and put to flight the empire of evil. I pray that you would cause each one of them to feel like you gave the rhema specific exact word that they needed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Eat humble pie. It's non-fattening. Do you ever feel like God makes you eat humble pie? Like, oh man, I'm forced to eat humble pie. They were making fun of me. She dumped me. He looked down upon me. I failed in this endeavor. I missed my shot. I scored for the wrong team. God's forcing me to eat humble pie. Listen, Eat humble pie, it's non-fattening, as the great evangelist D.L. Moody would say, be humble or you'll stumble. Be humble or you'll stumble. The Bible says pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Ask Jennifer Lawrence at the Oscars. Poor girl, man. How do you go to the Oscars and fall two years in a row? I'm only saying that because I'm a huge Jennifer Lawrence fan. She's Katniss for crying out loud. You know what I mean? Thank you for that. The mocking jays again two nights in a row. Be humble or you stumble. It's not about me. When we make it about God, when we humble ourselves in his sight, he will lift us up. That's why some of my favorite characters in history tended to be very humble, like Lawrence of Arabia. Last night we were talking about World War II. Let's talk for a minute about World War I. The unrivaled and undoubted greatest hero of the First World War in Great Britain's military corps was a man named Cor, was a man named T.E. Lawrence. Does anybody know what T.E. Lawrence's nickname was? T.E. Lawrence, that's his real name. What was his nickname? They made a very famous Oscar-winning movie about him, one of the most famous movies in history. What's his name? Yeah, Lawrence of Arabia. I think I heard it over here. Lawrence of Arabia. He was a really surprisingly humble guy in his everyday life. Even though he was this titan, this icon, this legend, sometimes he would dress in his Royal Air Corps uniform so that people wouldn't know he was this big, decorated, amazing titan among men. He would just dress in his private's uniform to make people think that he was an everyday soldier flying, flying planes in the British military. 
Well, one day, Lawrence of Arabia went to his good friend's house, Thomas Hardy. Not Tom Hardy as an Inception, the actor today, but Thomas Hardy, the very famous author who just had a big movie come out based on one of his books. Thomas Hardy, he was this amazing English novelist in the early 20th century, and these two great legends of history were good buddies. So one day, Lawrence of Arabia goes to Thomas Hardy, the novelist's house, to have tea, because in Britain, that's what you do. You have your pinky, and you have tea. So they're sharing tea together, but they weren't alone. You see, Thomas Hardy was there with his wife, and Lawrence of Arabia discovered that his visit coincided with another lady. Her name was, well, I don't know what her name was. She was the mayoress of Dorchester, too dignified to have a name. You call her the mayoress of Dorchester. Well, the mayoress of Dorchester sees this this officer in a private's uniform, no rank whatsoever, the lowest of the low, just flying planes in the British military. And she sees Lawrence of Arabia and has no idea who he is. She just thinks he's a a private in the British military. And and, and she says in French, because you got to remember, Lawrence of Arabia was British, he was English. She says in French to Thomas Hardy's wife, never in all my life, Have I been so offended? Never in all my life have I been so humiliated. I have never had to deign and humble myself to have tea with a private soldier. And she spoke it in French so he wouldn't know what she was saying. If you speak Spanish, that's what you can do at school. You know, when your friends walk by, if they just snubbed you, you can just talk bad about them in Spanish and they'll never know. So that's what she was trying to do. I'll just speak badly about him in French. Well, after she says, I can't believe I have to have tea with a private soldier, Mrs. Hardy, to whom she was speaking, didn't say anything. There was just an awkward silence. Crickets. Until after a moment, Thomas Hardy finally spoke up and in perfectly fluent French. He said, Mayoress, Mrs. Hardy, to whom you're speaking about me, doesn't actually understand that language. However, I am fluent in your language, and I'd be more than happy to be an interpreter for you. Boom. Isn't that awesome? Now, Lawrence of Arabia didn't say, do you know who I am? He just humbly said, you know, I speak your language, and I'll interpret your trash talk about me behind my back for you if you'd like. That reminds me a lot of Jesus. Jesus, people didn't recognize that he was the son of God, that he was the word of God made flesh, that he was the alpha and the omega. And when he came to earth, people mocked him. They said, we know him. He's just a carpenter. He's a blue collar worker. We know his stepdad, Joseph. We know his mother, Mary. We know his brothers and his sisters. He grew up with us here in Galilee and Nazareth. And they thought there's no way he could be the son of God. And Jesus never felt the need to prove himself. Jesus always had this ability to be humble. Check this out. The one time in the Bible, Jesus made an autobiographical statement of his personality. The one time he described his personality was in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30, where Jesus said, come to me for I am meek and lowly in heart. Jesus would often give titles to himself. He'd say, I'm the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. I'm the beginning and the end. I am the I am. 
Jesus would say in the book of John, but the one time he described his personality, he said, I am meek and lowly in heart. He used humility as the one characteristic attribute to define and describe his personality because Jesus, like Lawrence of Arabia, was not recognized as the great he was. You see, in Jesus' generation, you know that it wasn't unusual to be called the Son of God, right? I mean, Jesus wasn't the first person to be called the Son of God. In fact, he was living in a day where lots of people were called the Son of God. Did you know that around Jesus' time, there were coins in circulation? Part of the Roman economy was that there were these coins in circulation that had the image of Emperor Augustus on the coin. Just like we have George Washington on our coin, they had the Emperor Augustus. And on the coin, right above the picture of Emperor Augustus in the time of Jesus, were the words, Filius Dei. Filius Dei. It's the Latin phrase for son of God. You see, in Jesus' generation, they believed that the Roman emperors were deified. They said the Roman emperors are sons of God, and you actually had to burn a pinch of incense to Caesar to get a certificate called a libellus. While you worshipped any god you liked in the temple, you had to first, though, say Caesar was Lord. So Phileas Day Augustus on the coins was called the Son of God. Now, why is it amazing that Jesus was called the Son of God? Here's why it's amazing. Because you called the emperor the Son of God. You called Achilles, the Homeric warrior, the Son of God. You called Alexander the Great the Son of Zeus. That's what he was called. If you were a great warrior or an emperor or an aspiring politician, then you could be called the son of God. But what offended people so much is that Jesus could be called the son of that almighty God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when he was born in a feeding trough, lived in a poor family, was a nobody, living in an empire ruled exclusively by somebodies, and he was living in an occupied territory. How could he be called the son of God? So, for example, where the Buddha had wealth and noble birth and abandoned it to seek enlightenment, Jesus was the other way around. He was born poor and was a penniless teacher from Nazareth, and yet he attained the ultimate nobility where the Bible says he's the king of kings. That's what Philippians 2 verse 5 through 8 means when it says that Jesus did not think it robbery to be equal with God. Jesus was in the form of God, but he humbled himself, made himself of no reputation, was obedient to death, yea, even death on the cross, so that the Father sought fit to exalt him. So now Jesus has the name above all names, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father, whether in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Jesus now has the ultimate nobility according to the Bible. Why? Because he humbled himself. And now Jesus does indeed have the greatest reputation in all of history. Nobody ever changed the world, even on a secular historical level, than Jesus Christ. How many of you have heard of Napoleon Bonaparte? Please raise your hand. Napoleon Bonaparte was the world's last great world conqueror. Lived in the late 17, early 1800s. You know what Napoleon Bonaparte said about Jesus? Napoleon Bonaparte, Napoleon the Great, said, I have known men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ was no mere man. There are no human terms of comparison that you can employ with Jesus. He said, Charlemagne, Caesar, Alexander, and myself, we have all founded empires. 
Napoleon said, but what did we found our empires upon? Upon what did we rest the creation of our genius? He said, upon force. But Jesus founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Jesus, according to Napoleon Bonaparte, was greater than Charlemagne, greater than Alexander, greater than Hannibal, greater than Julius Caesar, because now there is 2.18 billion Christians on the face of the planet who say Jesus is Lord. Isn't that epic? The name above all names, son, man. That's awesome. So let's take a look at our text. That's the power of humility. He humbled himself, Philippians 2, and now he has the name above all names. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 teaches us to follow in his footsteps. Look at what the author says. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Now, when I think of this theme, it's not about me, it's about him. When I think of this subject of humility that we're really focusing on this week, I love it and I love the theme and it couldn't be better. But sometimes, at least back in the day, I used to get depressed when I thought about humility. I'm like, man, I got to be humble. Like, it's not about me. That's not very fun. But look at the second half. Tyler was telling us about this this morning. Look at the second half of 1 Peter 5, 6. What happens when you humble yourself? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Jesus taught this over and over again. He said, whoever humbles himself will be exalted, but he who exalts himself will be humbled. James says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he too will exalt you in due time. So James, Peter, Jesus all teach that humility actually leads to exaltation. God uses you to a greater extent, because this is how life works. When you make yourself small, you will actually gain greater affection from people. Nobody likes a cocky person, not at the end of the day. That's why have you ever noticed, like, when you really like somebody, you use diminutive endearments. You say, what does that mean? Diminutive is, ironically, a big word that means small. So diminutive endearments means you use small nicknames when you, when you love or like somebody. Like, notice how oftentimes girlfriends will call their boyfriend babe. Now, now really think about that. Babe? Babe? Like, you're calling your loved one a baby? Like, oh, babe. You know, like, shrinking your boyfriend. It's, this is, has nothing to do with anything, but did you ever see the movie Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? Yeah, I grew up with that. Babe, I just want to shrink you. Sweetie pie. That's what you tell a little kid. Oh, hi, sweetie pie. How was your day? Sweetie pie. Cute. Oh, hi, cutie. Hey, cutie, how was your day? Cute cutie. You know what I tell my wife? I, I can't stop. I, I got in this habit years ago. I call her bug. And I'm like, I got to stop calling. She's just so cute. She's like a little bug. So I said, hey, hey, Bug, how are you? I'm like, shoot, Nisha, I got to stop. And I made a pact to stop. And one week later, I kept calling her Bug. So I've been calling her Bug for like seven years. Because humans, listen, hey, I'll get some ooze and ahs. She's beautiful and she's awesome. And she's cute as a little ladybug. Yeah, it's awesome. But when you, when, when you really have affection, when you have affection for something, you make it small. Here's to looking at you, kid. You know what I mean? You make them small. I never say to my wife, hey, hey, whale, you want to go out for dinner? <laughs> I would be in the doghouse, son, right? That ain't no whale of a tail. <laughs> I 
Hey, hog, you want to hang out tonight? <laughs> Dino, how was your day, dinosaur? Like, how would that go? It's human psychology. This is just human psychology. We make things smaller that we have affection for. That's why you'll never use huge phrases for your loved ones. You say, cutie pie, sweetie, bug, babe. In the same way, the Bible says that the first king of Israel, Saul, it says when Saul was small, when Saul was small, when Saul was small in his own eyes, then he was king. He was a head and shoulders above everybody else. He was like Brad Pitt, man. He was Nash Greer eyes, Brad Pitt looks, Zac Efron aura, James Dean daydream look in his eyes. He had everything going for him, man. I'm serious. And he was humble at first. He, he actually hid among the livestock and, and he hid among the equipment so that he wouldn't be crowned king when the coronation ceremony was happening. But then he got puffed up, then he got cocky, and that's when he got put down and David was lifted up in his stead. So too, when you make yourself small, God can use you to a greater extent because when you have these diminutive endearments attached to your own life, it draws affection toward yourself. So girls, watch out when that guy says, you want to go to church with me tonight? I put the stud in Bible study. Watch out for that guy. That's all I'm saying, man. Those who humble themselves into the mighty hand of God, he will exalt them in due time. Because listen, this is why it's so important. This is why it's so integral to our faith that we have humility. Hear me on this. Because unless we know how much we need God, unless we, unless we shrink and get small and realize how big God is, we're not going to understand our need for him. C.S. Lewis said, as long as you're looking down on people and things, you can never see anything that's above you. Never look down on anyone unless you're going to help them up. And it's when we make ourselves small that we realize how big God is. It's when we realize how much we need him. It's when we realize that the more desperate the case, the more room for God's grace. The more desperate the case, the more room for God's grace. That's why the Bible says not Jesus died for us and demonstrated God's love for us when we were awesome, bomb.com, amazing blessing people's socks off, blowing people away with how amazing we are. The Bible says that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says we were his enemies and we were, we were helpless. Now, I love this because a lot of theologians like to, like to call the church the bride of Christ. Have you ever heard that phrase, like Christians are the bride of Christ? Have you ever thought about when Jesus, our, our husband, died for the bride of Christ, according to Romans, while we were sinners? If you think of us as the bride of Christ, Jesus died for us not when we had the stunning red dress on, not when we had the hair cascading down our backs, not when we had the pearls around our necks, not when we had the pearly whites shining, not when we had the eyeliner perfectly applied. By the way, girls, try to put on eyeliner without opening your mouth. It's impossible. Like, in the car. I think I'm going to sneeze with my eyes open before a girl ever puts on eyeliner with her mouth closed. Just saying. But I don't know, gotta open my mouth. It wasn't when we had the eyeliner or mascara or whatever you call perfectly applied. I unfortunately don't wear those cosmetics. It wasn't when we, had, when we had the high heels on our feet. It wasn't when we were red carpet ready, man. That's not when Jesus died for us. Jesus died for the bride of Christ when we had curlers in our hair. 
We had the green face glop from Neutrogena all over our face. So we had the cucumbers popping out of our eyes, you know. The pink bathrobe on our body, the, the bunny slippers on our feet. We had a Twinkie in one hand, a Ho-Ho in the other hand, a Twix hanging out of our mouth, and Gilmore Girls is playing on the background, and Jesus comes as our hero, and he sweeps us away, and he says, I, I love you so much. He's like, I'm going to demonstrate God's love for you, not when you're at your best, but when you're at your worst. You picking up what I'm throwing down? Not when you're awesome, but when you feel like you have no beauty, no worth, no value. That's when Jesus died for us. The more desperate the case, the more room for God's grace. But really hear me on this. Humility doesn't mean that you think less of yourself. It means you think of yourself less. Humility doesn't mean you think less of yourself. It means you just think about yourself less often. Some people think humility means I walk around saying, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, why don't I just go eat worms with Eeyore? No, the Bible says actually you're in the image of God, so live up to who you already are. I like how Paul the Apostle never said, to the idiots at Corinth, I write, or to the stupid sinners in Ephesus, let me say, or to the ridiculous phonies in Philippi, I dictate this letter. He always said to those called to be saints. You know what's really funny in the Bible? Paul said that the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, he said that the Corinthians were saints. Now, have you ever read Corinthians? I would not call the Corinthians saints. I'd call them idiots. Like, the Corinthians were getting drunk on communion. Seriously, they were, they were taking the wine of communion and getting drunk. They were hoarding the bread, and the poor were starving, and they were, they were eating a lot of communion bread to be gluttons. And one guy was sleeping with his dad's wife. They had some serious problems. I'd say, to the idiots at Corinth. But what does Paul say? To those called to be saints at Corinth. See, sometimes you say, well, I'm, I'm an ain't. I'm not a saint. God says, you are a saint. Live up to who you already are. Live up to who you already are. You're in the image of God. It doesn't mean, yeah, I, I'm pretty excited about that. Live up to who you are, man. It doesn't mean you think less of yourself. It just means you think about yourself less. you got to have this combination, humble confidence. Humility in yourself, but confidence in God and who he's called you to be. Humble confidence. And you got to believe the second half of this verse that as you humble yourself, God wants to lift you up, exalt you, and use you. Satan tries to limit your praying because he knows your praying will limit him. So you've got to attempt big things for God and expect big things from God. And I just believe we've got to expect that God's going to use us because if you're coasting, you're going downhill. And I want to tell you this, life is too short not to like go big and go home. You know, Life is a toilet paper roll. The closer you get to the end, the faster it goes. Have you ever thought about that? Life is like a toilet paper roll. The closer you get to the end, the faster it goes. When I, you don't have to clap about everything, but that's cool too, whatevs. That wasn't the most like, beautiful quote ever, but that's cool. Serious, the, the longer you go through life, the more you're going to find it goes by too quickly. I believe God has created us to do great things in our generation and to dream big for God. Just do it. <laughs> Friends, 
Friends, we are not born just to pay bills and die. Okay, no more clapping for a little bit. I, I'm, I'm cool with it. I like it. But listen, we are not born just to pay bills and die. We're not. We were born for so much more. Listen, I don't believe it's your teleologic design. I don't believe it's your metaphysical purpose. I don't believe God, when he was crafting you in your mother's womb, said, I created you to pay bills and die. I believe God has destined you. I believe God has made you for so much more. As you humble yourself in his sight, walk with him, he wants to exalt you in due time. I read this story of an Australian nurse named Bronnie Ware. Bronnie Ware. She spent the bulk of her career as a nurse in palliative care, which means that as a nurse, she spent all of her time with people who knew that they had 12 weeks left to live. She was living with people who were on their deathbed bed and caring for them, not trying to cure their diseases. Their diseases were incurable. She was simply trying to ease them into death and help them not suffer too much before they died. Bronnie Ware said in the bulk of her career, in the many years that she spent in palliative care, when people had only 12 weeks left to live, she said people began to have more clarity now that they knew their life was ending. And she said the number one regret of my patients, the number one regret that they had, the number one thing they would do if they could go in a time machine and live their life again, she said the number one regret of my dying patients over the years is this, they regretted that they didn't have the courage to live life true to themselves, but they were trying to live the lives rather that others were expecting of them. That was the number one regret. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself and not the life others expected of me. So often we look at other people and we say, well, are they going to lift me up? Or does promotion come from the east or from the west when the Bible says promotion actually comes from God? Is this person liking me? Is this person going to promote me or exalt me or see my worth? And so often we try to find our worth in others and we compare ourselves with them. You remember Peter did this? Peter, when he was walking with Jesus along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus told him that he was going to stretch out his hands and be crucified upside down, being carried away to a place he didn't want to go. And Peter immediately said, what about John? You, you've told me my destiny. Okay, that's cool, Lord. You have a destiny for me. But what about John? What's going to happen with him? And what did Jesus say in response? What is that to you? You follow me. Don't compare yourself with others. Don't look around. Don't look down. Look up. What is that to you? Comparison is the thief of joy. You have a destiny. I'm going to speak from my heart for a second. Most humans lose traction on who they are destined to be because they spend their entire lives trying to impress someone they never, ever, ever will. Most often, we lose traction on who we are destined to be because we spend our lives trying to impress someone we never, ever, ever will. People are not your dictionary. They don't define you. People are not your dictionary. They don't define you. God gives definition to your life. There are 6,775,235,842 people in the world. Why are you letting one of them ruin your life? I'm serious. Because God says, I love you to pieces. That's why we have the pieces of communion so often at our churches. 
I love you to pieces. My body was broken to pieces. I love you. I give you worth. I want to exalt you. You humble yourself in my sight and I'll give you the value that you're seeking because you know that God, listen, 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 listen. God, God, hear me. God, open some ears. God, you about to pick up what I'm going to throw down right here? God, God doesn't love you. God so loves you. God doesn't love you. He so loves you. God has a bad case of the so loves. John 3.16. Jesus didn't say God loved the world. Jesus said God, this is a huge word, God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God has a bad case of the so loves, friends. What do you mean a bad case of the so loves? You, you've ever seen that dad? We were talking about the first night God is our Abba, Papa, Father. He's our, he's our dad. Have you ever seen that dad who has a bad case of the so loves for his kid? He's like, little Johnny will have gushers. He will have fruit snacks. He will have Xbox 360, but he's also going to eat organic because we want him to be healthy. He's going to get straight A and I'm going to make sure that he gets awesome grades. Then when I take him to baseball practice, I'm going to give the coach a piece of my mind and I'm going to tell the coach that Johnny is the next Barry Bonds and Alex Rodriguez without the steroids problems. So he better bat third or fourth in the lineup. He's going to bat cleanup hitter and he's going to have a starting position. And then Johnny, little junior, Johnny gets up to bat, you know, and he line drive down the left baseline. And the ball is skidding across the field and Johnny rounds first, goes to second. And, and, and the father's like, go to third, Johnny, go to third. And Johnny runs to third and then he slides into third base and the umpire says, safe. The dad's like, that's my boy, that's my boy. He's like to all the other soccer moms and little league parents, that's my boy. He just got a triple Alex Rodriguez in the future, son. That's my boy, future World Series MVP champion. That's my boy. And junior Johnny, he's like dusting himself off. He's like, dad, shh, you're embarrassing me. Like, seriously, knock it off. This is embarrassing me. And the dad's like, I can't, Johnny. I can't, Junior. I, I can't stop. I just got a bad case of the so loves. I'm stinking proud of you. That's how God is toward you, friends. Jesus says, God doesn't love. He so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son. And what does it say after that? That whoever believes in him will not die. You won't die. God loves you so much that he's not going to let you die. Now, here's the thing. Jesus promised that death does not have the last word, that you're going to live forever. You say, well, how do I know he's got such a bad case of the soul loves for me that he's going to make me live forever? Well, you know that scientifically there are some things in creation that never die and live forever. Here's the thing. Scientists teach us that all matter gets recycled. They teach us that one day you're going to die, right, scientists? They say one day your body is going to be recycled. You're going to be buried six feet under. And in a million years from now, you're going to just be dug up by humans of the future as coal. And they're going to take your ashes, which turns into coal in a million years, and you're going to, they're going to then put it in their fireplace, and you're going to be smoke floating in the ether in a million years by future humans. They teach that all matter gets recycled. Scientists also teach us this, that the second law of thermodynamics, entropy, means that we are all, all matter, everything in the world is going from order to disorder. Everything's becoming more chaotic. 
Meaning that everything falls apart. Whether you're talking about your pet turtle or your turtleneck, one day it's going to decay and fall apart. Whether you're talking about the carpet or the person sitting on that carpet, everything falls apart. We're going to get wrinkles, we're going to get gray hair, we're going to go into the grave, so is our pet turtle. I don't have a pet turtle, I had a guinea pig, but anyways. Everything's going from order to disorder. And that's pretty depressing. You think, well, everything falls apart. Entropy, second law of thermodynamics, everything's becoming more chaotic, everything's dying. But here's the second part of that truth. Scientists have also discovered that there is something that never dies. There's something that's never destroyed, and that's called energy. Scientists have discovered that energy cannot be created, nor can it be destroyed. You can neither create energy nor can you destroy energy. And all philosophers and all religions and all scientists are trying to find what is the origin of energy. It can't be created and it can't be destroyed. No matter how many millions of dollars they spend in the lab, they'll never be able to create energy. They'll never be able to destroy energy. You can refigure energy. You can put it into different matter, but you can never destroy it. Listen, just as energy cannot be created or destroyed, so too you come from a God who cannot be created. Therefore, it stands to reason that you cannot be destroyed. Your soul is going to live on forever. I believe that you are more than the sum of your knowable parts. I don't believe in philosophical materialism, which means that you're nothing more than fingernails, a three-pound brain of gray matter, eyeballs, eyelashes, a belly button, and toes. I believe that there's more to you than the sum of your noble parts. That's what Jesus called the soul. And when you die, that soul, Jesus said, that soul, like energy, will in fact live forever. So have you ever noticed like parents sometimes will be like, you teenagers, you just think you're going to live forever. You just think you're indestructible, don't you? You're like, yes. Scientifically, there are some things that are indestructible. Jesus taught, I'm as indestructible as I believe myself to be when I put my faith in God. I do live forever. I will not be destroyed. My soul does go on. So no matter what we go through, we know that we have hope in life and we have hope even beyond the grave so we can dance in defiance of the dark. We can say to the darkness, I defy you and I'm going to dance in your face. As Cadence is playing, we know that God turns our mourning into dancing. He gives us the garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness. So I'm going to dance in defiance of the dark because I know that life does not end when I go to the grave. I do live forever because I put my hope in God. And when you have the humility to put your hope in God, when you have the humility to live a life where he is above me, then what you find is God doesn't only meet your expectations. He does exceeding abundantly above all you could ever ask or even think according to the power that works within you. Psalm 42 verse 1 says, my soul pants for the living God. Verse 2 my soul thirsts for God. Verse 3, my tears have become my food. Check this out. I'm about to drop a bomb on you. Psalm 42, listen to this. Verse 1, the psalmist says, I pant for you, panting air, right? Oxygen, I pant for you. Verse 2, I thirst for God. Thirst, water. So you have air, verse 1, panting. Thirst, water, verse 2. Number 3, verse 3. He says, my tears have become my food. Food, right? In the first three verses of Psalm 42, you have air, water, and food. And he says, I thirst for you. My, my tears are my food. I pant for you like oxygen. Listen, man can live for 40 days without food. He can live for three days without water. He can live for eight minutes without air, but he cannot live a second without God. 
But with God, he will live forever. So can I tell you, if you're needing hope in this life, maybe it's not just hope beyond the grave that God will even exalt you beyond death as you follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Maybe you just need hope like for right now. Again, when I talk to teenagers, it seems like the number one problem is relationships. I know it was for me when I was in high school. It's like, when is that girl going to say yes? When's that guy going to like me? Listen to this. When did, when did Adam get hooked up with his wife? When did Adam get hooked up with Eve? Was Adam on the prowl and he's like, I can't wait to get hooked up with my mate? What if Adam didn't trust God? What if Adam didn't humble himself in the sight of God and let God put him together with that perfect mate? What if, what if Adam said, I'm just going to go on the prowl and I'm going to find somebody? He would have ended up with a chimpanzee. He would have said, well, hair, two arms, two legs, kind of look like each other, two eyes. A little furry for my liking. We got to get her a razor, but I guess this is the closest thing to me. I got to make something happen. You know, like for better or for worse, in riches or in rags, in good times and in bad, for as long as we both shall live, I do thee wed. What a depressing story that would be. No, what was that? Adam wasn't on the prowl like, I got to make this. This happens to young people. I got to make this relationship happen. I got to exalt myself. I got to prove myself to this guy or this girl. No, what was Adam doing when he got hooked up with Eve? He was sleeping. Go to sleep. That's all he was doing. He was sleeping and God took the rib out of Adam's side, according to Genesis. And from that rib, he fashioned a girl and Adam woke up. He's like, whoa, man. Woe, man, woe, man, woman, 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 bone of my bone. That's what I call her, woman, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Woe, man, God hooked it up. Listen, you got to rest in God and trust in him. Go to sleep. Ruth got hooked up with Boaz when Boaz was sleeping. Boaz got his wife when he was sleeping. Go to sleep like Jesus in the storm, like my dad in the plane. Go to sleep. Let God do the hooking up. Because some of you are like, Ben, I'm, I'm in such despair. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm looking for that spouse. But there's nobody in Virginia. There's nobody in Maryland. All the good guys are taken. I don't know I'm ever going to find someone I'm going to marry. What am I, I going to do? It's overtime now. Everything's on the line. Where am I going to find that guy? I'm already 16. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> Sleep, friends. Because God is not just the maker, he's the first match maker. You can clap to that if you want. God's not just the maker, he's the first matchmaker. That's the Genesis story. He's not just the maker, the first matchmaker. Jesus said, what God, what God has put together, let no man separate. Implying that God's the one who does the putting together. So Adam didn't go prowling around saying, well, there's Mr. and Mrs. Chimp, there's Mr. and Mrs. Parakeet, there's Mr. and Mrs. Albino Zebra, there's Mr. and Mrs. Pygmy Hippo, and there's no Adam's family. Where, where's the Adam's family? No, he didn't do that. He didn't go on the prowl. He just, he just fell asleep. My friends, I want to tell you that you can rest in God as you humble yourself in his sight, knowing that he will exalt you to the place of your destiny, and he'll hook you up with that perfect person, that perfect job that's for your personality, that, that perfect career, that, that perfect family um, that he wants to see you put in. He's the one who takes care of your destiny. Both misery and faith take the same amount of energy, but misery's outcome is rather different than that of faith. So as we close, if misery and faith both take the same amount of energy. You might as well choose faith.
It takes just as much energy to pull your hair out, to get stressed, to try to prove yourself and exalt yourself as it does just to humble yourself, take it easy, sit back, relax, because every setback is a setup for a comeback, as we talked about the first night, and rest. Because God does want to bless you. And my friends, I want to tell you that no matter what you're going through, you've been called to dance in defiance of the dark because God has a bad case of the so loves for you. That out of the over 6 billion people in the world, you shouldn't let one ruin your life. Don't let people define you. They're not your dictionary. Don't lose traction on your destiny trying to impress someone you never, ever, ever will. Don't compare yourself with the people around you. Comparison is the thief of joy because we're not just born to pay bills and die. We're not meant to coast and go downhill. We were meant for big things. Satan tries to limit our praying because he knows our praying will limit him. And the Lord has called us to have humble confidence. The more desperate the case, the more room for God's grace. So may we be the kind of people who, like Jesus, eat humble pie. It's non-fattening because if we're humble, we'll never stumble. And we can know that God takes every mess we make and he turns it into a message. God will turn your mess into a message. He will turn your test into a testimony because in his presence even the longest journey is made shorter even the hardest battle is made easier to bear i know you're going through hard things but let me tell you this god 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 has the solution before you ever had the problem god has the solution before you ever had the problem and i want to tell you that even death can't stop you colossians 1:18 says Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. It says that Jesus was actually born from death just as you plant a seed and you bury it. And then it comes out producing fruit. Jesus said, unless a seed dies, it can't bear fruit. So too, when you're buried six feet under, you can know that, that you, like Jesus, will be born from the dead, that you are gonna be resurrected, that death does not have the last word. Just as Jesus was born from the dead, so too, we can be confident that Jesus turns the tomb into a womb. He turns the casket into a cradle. He turns the burial place into a birthplace. So let's dance in defiance of the dark. Let's worship him together.